This week we found out that honking the horn in Ottawa, Canada can get you thrown to the ground and fined. Uh, that is, if you refuse to show your ID, you get thrown to the ground, even if you're a 78-year-old man, you know, four foot ten. Uh, he had been supporting the truckers who were protesting and claiming government overreach, right? He had violated a noise ordinance and then ended up getting bruised all, up all over it. And I just want you to think about the, the cause, right? Would you be willing to suffer mistreatment over that cause? Is that worth it, right? But what is it you are willing to cause a stir over? What's the message that you're sharing, that we as the people of God are sharing, that's meant to shake up the systems? Is it pro or anti-vaccine, or pro or anti-mask, or pro or anti-Trump, or pro or anti-Biden, or pro this, pro that? I do believe these concerns have shaken up our lives to, to a pretty big degree, but are they worthy of all the chatter, worthy of taking abuse? I just want you to think about that. Is it worth dying for? Is it worth living for? If we're caught up in this sort of speech and mistreatment and all that kind of stuff, I, I wonder how do we cause a stir and shake things up about ultimate concerns, about the claims of Jesus, depending on the crowd, distributing the peace can lead to disturbing the peace. Uh, blessed are the bruised and bloody feet of those who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns, quoting from Isaiah. In Acts chapter 14, 1 through 7, <clears throat> Paul and Barnabas, the apostles, have now come to Iconium, and they enter there into a Jewish synagogue, and it says, they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews, literally disobedient Jews, stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace. The Lord bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers, the attempt to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Okay, so let's analyze the scene. Uh, who, who's involved here? We have apostles, obedient apostles, responding to their call. Where, where do they start? They start in the synagogue, and they speak convincingly. They start in the synagogue. That's their practice. They're going to go to the to the central hub of Jewish life, because they go to the Jew first and, and also to the Greek. Um, they probably spoke in 
such a way that they did in Antioch of Pisidia, where they outline the story of God and how Jesus fits into that. But that causes problems, right? So we have the obedient apostles. They start in the synagogue. They speak convincingly. And then you have the unbelieving or disobedient Jews, literally disobedient, meaning they have a word now from other Jewish people, right, from brothers, who they are now disobeying the word. I think sometimes we think of unbelieving and disobeying separately, but that is the chief disobedience, is unbelief itself. And so what did the disobedient Jews do? Um, of course, we have obedient Jews too, but these are disobedient ones. They stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds, getting them fired up. We'll talk more in, in uh, weeks to come about kind of what maybe they were thinking, what was the stir up, but they brought these Gentiles who they normally wouldn't associate with onto their team here. So they stir up the Gentiles, they poisoned their minds. And then we're back to the obedient apostles. The obedient apostles, what do they do with that, the mistreatment there, with being stirred up, with the poisoning of the minds? They just remained in the city. So obedient apostles now remain in the city and speak boldly for Jesus. They just couldn't quite commit to being quiet about the Lord. Shame on them. They just couldn't do it. They had to obey God rather than men. And so the town is being turned upside down. Sharp dividing lines are occurring. But there's one more uh, person in here, the gracious Lord. The Lord granted or gave signs and wonders, right? He confirmed the message. The gracious Lord confirmed the message and granted signs and wonders. Isn't that just kind of beautiful? The words of grace, as Dean Pinter says, are reinforced and verified by deeds of power. So Jesus is watching what's going on in this city and says, I'm going to give you wonders and signs so that you can confirm, the, 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 I can testify that what you're saying is absolutely true. The scene shifts to this combined mob now. It's a whole other part of the scene. And they planned abuse and attempted execution. They planned abuse and attempted execution. Dean Pinter says this, More often than not, signs and wonders seem to illuminate or even instigate opposition to obedient faith. The gospel, along with its demonstrative witness in signs and wonders, sharpens this reality. The fact is, Many people do not want more of God in their lives. It's often far more appealing and far easier to simply maintain the status quo of belief and behavior. Per perhaps you've noticed this. As you're reading through the scriptures, you're like, what is wrong with these people? They're signs and wonders. Why wouldn't they want that? What more would you need to believe? Well, fact is, some people don't want more of God in their lives. Let's just keep the status quo. Maybe that's a religious hierarchy, a religious power system, or maybe that's just your own idolatry and your selfish, independent nature. You just don't want more of God. We've, we've got to repent of that. 
So they planned this abuse and attempted the execution. They were going to stone them to death. And the obedient apostles take a turn. They flee for safety. And then what do they continue to do? Just preach the gospel. <laughs> they go to some other towns and they continue to announce that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish hope. That to be obedient and faithful worshipers of Yahweh, of Adonai, what do you do? You swear allegiance to the Son. Because he is the completion of the story. And he invites us further in to become family. I want us to think about what might have become of that gathering of believers in Iconium. So many were persuaded by the word and the power of the Spirit. And the persecution must have continued. There were, there were a lot of leftovers here between the combined mob and the obedient disciples. So did they gel as a family? Did they persist in the declaration of Jesus? There was quite a splash in the community, wasn't there? I want you to think about this equation. The Spirit's power equals persecution and persuasion. Power equals persecution and persuasion. But it doesn't leave the community the same. So, in the city of Iconium, the believers gathered together, they received persecution, and they experienced the persuasive nature of the Word of God. But it didn't leave the community the same. Hmm. <laughs> is that the same in Issaquah? Is that the same on the east side? We can read across the page in Acts 14 to hear of some of what happened on the, the return visit of the missionaries through that town um, to Iconium. And my friend Justin will be preaching on that passage in a few weeks. But we do know from some letters later written to it that it proved a difficult process to become family for those believers in Jesus that were from these different backgrounds. I mean, just the social pressure alone on those with unbelieving Jewish friends. You know, so I'm, I'm a Jewish background believer, and now I've got all these uh, friends who are saying, what are you doing with Jesus? How dare you? What are you doing with those Gentiles? Shame on you. You're eating around the same table with Gentiles? These, these difficulties then persisted into the early years of the church here in Galatia, the larger region. But I want us to consider our role as the church, the family of God, in the community here on the east side. From Iconium, I want us to bring this to Issaquah, right? I want us to think about this. What, if anything, about our life together provokes people to consider the way of Jesus as we live out the calling as the family of God? Is there any provocation, any persecution, any persuasion as it relates to the way of Jesus and our calling? So let's think about a few questions. What's our motivation? Is it just leave us alone to worship God in peace? Or do we have a passion that the word of God would go out and reach our neighbors with the gospel of, of peace with God? So do you want to worship God in peace? Or do we want to share peace with God? 
Do we want the power of the Spirit to fall on us and on our community? Do we want that? The power of God, the power of the Spirit. Are we content with, would we be okay with the lines of distinction being sharpened, even as the declaration of Jesus goes out? Because remember, power equals persecution and persuasion, because there's some sort of provocation. It doesn't leave the community the same, but the opposite is true as well. No power, no persecution, no persuasion, because there's no provocation. But there's also no power. I'm not an expert, but I think what the church experiences now is passive indifference from the community around us. They maybe say, well, they're nice enough people and we'll tolerate them as long as they stay in their lane. You just stay indoors in your church building and that's enough for us. I am very sure that the devil, Satan, is willing to let the church sleep in as long as it wants to. Sleep, sleep, sleep. It's okay. But I know for me, I, I believe this is your heart as well. We want God to display his power and validate his message. Display his power, validate his message. Are you with me? Now, the signs and wonders he can perform are not limited in any way. But I don't think that he needs to heal someone's heart disease or cancer to point to the message of Jesus today. I don't think it's just about physical healing that that's what's going to perform the sign and wonder that's going to cause people to believe. Now, we'll pray for that. Absolutely. But aren't you with me sometimes? We're not always convinced that's what God wants to do. So we'll pray, God, if it be your will, do this thing. But are we really sure that's his will? That's my question. What we are convinced that he wants to do, what we know that he is up to, is redeeming lost souls. That's the primary work, right? Should I tell him, you know, rise up and walk, or your sins are forgiven, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's one that relates to the other. That miracle, that sign, that wonder can transform a community as new creation spreads out. This person's now become a new creation, involved in now in the family of God, deeper and deeper into the family of God. And then, and then that new creation spills out into the rest of life. So how do we spread the message of Jesus as Lord and the forgiver of sins? I want to settle into that for a minute. How do we spread the message of Jesus as Lord? I mean, he is Lord. Risen from the dead, he is Lord. And he's the forgiver of sins. He's the savior of the world. Think with me on this. It's easy to say Jesus is Lord when your life shows Jesus as Lord. Okay, it's easy to say, hey man, Jesus is Lord when your life shows Jesus as Lord. Don't you know, that's a bit of the hiccup in our witness, in our message of peace, in, the, in having the feet that, that announce, run and announce the good news of God. Well, he's not really Lord in my life, so I'm not sure how to say he's the Lord of life. And it's true. 
the, the real estate agent isn't very convincing when he tells you why you should invest and buy a new home and do this kind of thing if he's living in a van down by the river right you want to see you want to see your real estate agent invested in real estate not living in a van down by the river trying to convince you yeah you need to own property so let's train together but let's live our lives out in the open with Jesus as lord how how do you do that pastor well if he is lord our schedule our finances our entertainment choices, our sexuality, our relationships fall under his lordship, right? Here's one way that in everyday conversation, you could show that you're putting into practice the idea that Jesus is Lord, the claim that has been backed up by the resurrection, Jesus, you are Lord. If someone says, hey, um, you got time for this? You can process in your mind and say, you know what? Uh, my commitment's first to this. <laughs> you know who's actually in charge of my schedule? I don't really feel like I should do that. I don't think I want to do that. I would need to check with my boss first about that one. Uh, that we live our lives out in the open. That our, that our decisions that we are processing with our friends take into account that we don't own any of this. It's all his. So... As we do that, uh, it'll be easier to say Jesus is Lord when our life shows Jesus as Lord. And that's what we're committing to do together with one another, develop the Christ life in us. Number two, daily pray for the filling of the Spirit to empower you and guide you to witness. If you don't have the power of God, there's not going to be anything persuasive, provocative, or even thing, thing that would cause persecution if the Spirit of God isn't there. There will be some kinds of persecution, <laughs> maybe, if you're trying to, trying to come at people and trying to be the one that, that convicts them of sin and, and does all that. But the Spirit of God and the Word of God are all that is needed for the people of God to live out the mission of God. And I think we need to believe that further. The third thing there, deal with your sin and help others deal with theirs. Deal with your sin and then help others deal with their sin. Do you think that our neighbors, your neighbor, needs, a sh needs from you to offer a sharp critique of their sin? Do you think they need it? Well, Aaron, are you even sure that they believe in sin and guilt? I'm pretty sure their therapist or their yoga uh, guru told them not to believe in guilt and sin anymore. It's just something that they need to leave behind. Well, I'll tell you this. They do believe in sin. They just believe that they can deal with it themselves. You don't have to believe in God to know the brokenness caused by the selfish, independent nature. S-I-N, the selfish, independent nature. And whether or not they believe in God, they think they can remove the guilt. They can atone for their own sins. Let me, let me prove this to you. Because we're watching people atone for their sins all the time. How do they do that? Well, I think three ways, minimally. We're watching your neighbors, you're, you're watching your neighbors beat themselves up emotionally and physically. 
poison themselves emotionally and physically to try to remove the guilt and shame of sin. They know they're not living right. They know they're living in brokenness. They're trying to draw all these things in to fill the cracks. Sometimes this is done by just degrading themselves even further till they into oblivion. This long-form suicide to pay for their guilt. The second way they do it is, is your neighbors fill the broken cracks of their lives with luxury, you know, comfort, comfort, vacations, experiences, to try to have that good feeling outweigh the bad feeling. Like if I just pile up the entertainment, then I won't be thinking about how, how bad it is. So you beat, they beat themselves up emotionally and physically, poison themselves they fill the broken cracks of their lives with luxury and vacations. This is how you know. But third, I think people believe that if they just do enough good works, they can cover for their sins. So not necessarily beat themselves up or cover and kind of overlay with just good goodness and entertainment, but they, but they do good works to cover for their sins. They have a very mathematical view of guilt. This reminds me, um, a few years ago I visited a, a Muslim madras um, in Fez, Morocco. It's about 800 years old, been around a while. And as they were giving me the tour, they, they mentioned that um, the way um, Islam teaches you to deal with sin is that um, you need to do more good to outweigh the bad. And I was like, that's what everybody believes, don't they? Until they find Jesus. He said, you've got an angel on your right shoulders that's writing down all the good works and an angel on your left shoulder that's writing down all the bad works. And then when it gets to the end, your good works have to outweigh your bad works. And that's how you manage sin. <laughs> if you're rich, all you have to do is build a mosque and that'll cover all sorts of infidelities, adulteries, and crimes because you just have to do it yourself. So we have a very do-it-yourself mindset when it comes to our own sin, but I do think people do believe in the concept of sin. People need to know that God is fulfilling his promises to be with us, to be, to be with his people, to deal with our sin and shame. They need to see that in our own lives as we deal with our own sin and as we help them deal with theirs. Through Jesus, he offers cleansing and forgiveness, not just a pat on the back to say, well, you're trying your best. Look at you. You're trying your best. He's actually doing the work of welcoming them into his new creation family. He's in the process, this is the sign and wonder, of regenerating humans and placing them in families. They need to hear this story of, of uh, God's re reconciling, regenerating work. To be invited into the story of a promise-fulfilling, forgiving, beautiful God full of justice and power. Tom Wright says this. It's a great word picture. I think you'll like it. As long as our churches are places where we struggle to sustain an hour or two's public worship per week, with real life only minimally affected by it, we will indeed end up like a bunch of vaguely religious cows. All right, got the mental image? Vaguely religious cows in a field mooing on Sunday mornings 
and chewing the cud the rest of the time. <laughs> no highs, no lows, no provocation, so no power, you know, no persecution, no persuasion. But he says, if we really worked at trying to be for our world and training to be for our world what the apostles were for their Jewish world, things might change. The gospel might come alive. Vested interests would be challenged, and they would bite back. But we would be on the map once more, the map which Luke, through the book of Acts, is offering us, even as the apostles hurry on once more to the next cities and districts, ready for more highs and more lows in the cause of God's kingdom. Thanks, Tom Wright, for calling us cows that moo on Sunday mornings and then chew our cud the rest of the week. We've got to train better. Not try harder. Train better to have that kind of witness in our community. At Isquah Christian Church, we're exploring our key identity as the family of God. It welcomes in new family members. Okay, we do have attenders to the worship service. Welcome, <laughs> attenders of the worship. But we don't want you to think of yourselves as attenders of a church service, but guests of the family with a deeper invitation, an invitation to go deeper in. See, it's our belief that God's always wanted a human family, and through allegiance to Jesus, he makes us sons and daughters together. And then together we're casting off sin, becoming more like Christ. And we want to make sure everyone gets the invite to more love, more power, more life, more meaningful participation in the family. So using the analogy of, of a home, there are several steps to go from being a guest to an active family member. And I want you to think about this. This is from Iconium to Issaquah. This is what we want for you so I want you to be thinking, is this something I want for myself to go further in to the family at ICC? First stage is the porch of this home, right? And I want you to ask yourself the question, do you feel like you are on the porch, just kind of looking in at the rest of the household, like that delivery man or someone just come to borrow a cup of sugar? Maybe you've listened to Jesus' call to come and see. And so you've been a part of a program or a, a service. You felt the welcome, but maybe you're a guest on a periodic basis and you're, you've had some good experiences. You've been presented the good news that God has come near. He's become king in Jesus. And that's what the gospel is. And you've been encouraged to affirm your allegiance to Jesus at this point. We've been, you've been hearing it, the call to repent, to turn from trusting yourself, to believe and be baptized. Maybe you've moved from the porch to the couch. You've accepted that Jesus is Lord. He's the Savior. You've been welcomed into God's family in response to Jesus' call to follow me. So you've been invited into some, some relationships. You've started to have deeper conversations. Uh, there on, on the couch, your, your regular part of of the services as a guest, but you're, you feel part of the family, but you want to be doing more, investing more, making more connections. We invite you from the porch to the couch to the table, right? 
Maybe you're at the table already where, where you feel like you're engaging in deeper relationships at ICC. You're learning how to talk about Jesus with those that are outside or, or on the porch. Maybe you've responded to Jesus' call to go fish and you're drawing people to yourself. You confess Jesus as Lord. You've been consistent in your fellowship with meals, ministry, and prayer. Maybe you've even connected new guests through this pathway. You're becoming known and getting to know others, and you're having spiritual conversations about King Jesus, right? This is when you've taken the step to become a member of ICC, a, a part of the family, uh, officially, and you're serving more regularly, learning how to use your gifts. This is great. So you move from the porch to the couch to the table, but ultimately you know, we want to get you into the kitchen where you feel like you're in the thick of the action with creating environments for others to flourish as family. You're, you're probably responding to the call of Jesus to go and bear much fruit. You're getting involved in stuff. You're, you're serving on a team. You're bringing other people into the household. Maybe you've figured out your spiritual gifts and you're moving toward the common family goal of making disciples who make disciples. This is the kind of thing that can happen through ministry teams in the church and where you live, work, learn, shop, and play. This is what we want to invite you deeper and deeper and deeper in. And my encouragement is that you, at any stage, you do what is very rather, rather uncommon. You allow people to look into your life. You just say, hey, would you help me go further in? I want to connect with Jesus. I call that the fridge, right? Uh, do you feel like there's a few family members who know who you really are, like really know who you are? You have to be really close or, or family to just go and, pop open someone's fridge right but i'm hoping that you'll you'll take that next step wherever you're at in the journey of just allowing people to be um, uh, on a regular basis with you being intimate and confessing supportive relationships with other christians so that you can grow into christ likeness uh, your inner life and your outer life with spiritual maturity and emotional maturity as we train others to follow jesus and then as we go out into the world, there will be provocation and persuasion and persecution. You want some more peas? <laughs> our prayer and our plan is that we would be postured to receive the power of God as we live as the people of God and publish peace in our place. Will you take that step further into the family?